This is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For this episode, I chat with Luke Yankee, and we cover a little bit of everything from family to playwriting to love to affirmations and Marilyn mom and me and so much more. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Luke Yankee. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe. And today with me on Zoom is Luke Yankee. Luke, thank you for joining me today. My great pleasure, Clayton. Happy to be here. I'm very excited to dive in on your life and lessons learned along the way to this point. Uh, we've connected through theatrical production, but there's so much more that you have done and are doing that I want to touch on. Before we get to any of that, I want to take it back to the beginning of time for you. What were your entertainment dreams growing up? My entertainment dreams growing up. Um, well, uh, I, I know we're going to get to this very soon, but uh, my mother was the actress Eileen Heckert, who won an Academy Award for the film Butterflies Are Free and is in the Theater Hall of Fame and uh, numerous Emmy, Emmys, etc. And from the time I was a very little boy, I said, Mommy, I want to do what you do when I grow up. And she would kind of look at me and roll her eyes and say, oh, honey, no, you don't because she knew how hard it was. It wasn't that she was trying to discourage me. She just knew how incredibly difficult it was. And and so after a while, they just, my, both my parents knew there was kind of no stopping me. So um, I guess that would be kind of the first entertainment dreams is, uh, I mean, I went to my first Broadway opening at uh, age nine in my little tiny tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I, you know, I just, I love this world from kind of the really my very earliest memories. Do Did you have a defining moment for you where it was like in one moment you decided this is what I'm going to do? Or had it always been just a part of your life? So it was a natural flow. Um, it had kind of always been a natural part of my life, but but, I, you know, I, I mean, it sounds so cliche. I mean, it's I, I did a play in grade school playing the master toy maker in Babes in Toyland. Mm. And, and I had this scene where I had to like yell and scream at the villain. And I, I felt real emotion. It's like, oh, my, th this is fabulous. And I just and, and walked off the, the stage and everybody sort of patting me on the back, telling me how wonderful I was. And and that that was it. There was no turning back after that. What, growing up, what did your parents teach you about kindness? Um, a great deal. My, my father, Jack Yankee, I, I tend to talk more about my mother because she was the vociferous one. You know, she was the famous one and all of that. But my father, Jack Yankee, was in the, one of the kindest men I have ever met in my life. Yeah. Uh, he was an insurance broker in Connecticut who supported all us crazy showbiz folk. And he just, he was, um, you know, he was really one of the closest things I have ever known to unconditional love. That and also uh, we had, uh, since my mother, you know, would work nights a lot, we had a Scottish governess who was with our family for 35 years. And to the day she died, my nanny had an accent you could cut with a knife. And she would say, I'm your mommy's understudy. But <laughs> but but she was absolutely wonderful. And, um, you know, my mother always said she wouldn't have been able to have a career without an exceptional husband and an exceptional governess. And um, 
but really they they both had incredible work ethics they were incredibly hardworking people mm-hmm. and uh whereas you know my mother was kind of out there in the public eye my father would just very quietly behind the scenes be named Connecticut insurance man of the year uh, you know, and then he'd walk home with this award. It's like, what, where, where, where did that come from? You know, and he just sort of did those things. And um, uh, in fact, when I met and fell in love with my husband, Don Hill, and I'm very proud to say that we've now been together 28 years. Uh, when I first met him, I said to my mother, my father was already passed, but I said to my mother, you know, mom, I think I found my Jack Yankee. And she's like, have you really? I said, yeah, yeah, I have. And uh, so, you know, again, I mean, and I find myself when I'm in a particularly, now that I'm a college professor, when I'm working with a student or or when I'm having a particularly um, uh, transcendent moment, for lack of a better word for it, and really helping somebody and nurturing someone, I feel like I'm channeling my father. Yeah. I love that. I absolutely love that. What were the takeaways growing up, I guess in hindsight now of the work-life balance, because that can be really fascinating, you know, being a celebrity and then also Mm -hmm. keeping a normal life in the house. It was, um, uh, I mean, my mother really struggled with that. I I think she achieved it for the most part, Um, again, you know, the fact that there was there was nanny there. And uh, and since most of the time when we were kids, my mother was working on Broadway mm-hmm. and doing some, you know, amazing plays, uh, long running plays. I mean, Butterflies Are Free, A View From The Bridge, The Bad Seed, etc. Oh, yeah. uh, although those first two, uh, those latter two were before I was born. But um, but because of the fact that she was mostly doing theater in those days and, of course, would come out to L.A. for periods of time to do film and TV, but mostly doing Broadway, she had little um, little rules uh, that, of her own. Um, so, for instance, she would be in the kitchen. We, we entered through the kitchen into the into the house. She would be in the kitchen standing at the sink as my brothers and I came home from school. You know, whether she was peeling potatoes or or whatever, polishing silver or whatever she was doing. But but just that whole thing, just so that and and during that time between, say, three and five, when she had to leave for the theater, uh, she did uh, she really did her best to be accessible. And, um, uh, you know, and again, she used to say about my father, she'd say, honey, he was women's lib before women's lib even existed. I mean, he was there changing the diapers and doing all of those things that uh, that, you know, a lot of men in that era did not do. And and he was again, he was just an absolutely extraordinary man. He was so loving and kind and generous and, um, uh, you know, enabled her to have a career and. then, you know, supported me and, and my brothers in our endeavors as well. Do, did you or do you have any mentors? And are there any standout lessons that come to mind? Um, well, probably the most important mentor for me was Hal Prince. I was Hal Prince's assistant on uh, a musical called Grind that starred uh, Ben Vereen and Leilani Jones and Stubby Kay. And God bless him. It was for all of his tremendous success. It was during that era, kind of pre-Phantom of the Opera, where he had a whole string of flops. Ah. And this was one of those. 
And I learned so much, Clayton, from being on the road with Hal Prince and, and uh, Larry Grossman, who did the music and, and, and all of these amazing people um, <laughs> with a show that was really a big turkey. And and one of the things that one of the things that Hal did that was so amazing was from the first day of rehearsals, he created this aura and this energy. And he would be saying things like, well, darlings, when we do the movie. And I'm like, yeah, I'm there. And behind the scenes, I'm reading this script and thinking it must be me. I mean, if if Hal Prince and all these amazing people and, you know, think this is the next Oklahoma, yeah. I, you know, what, what do I know at age 25? <laughs> so, I mean, he, he created this incredible sense of, of energy and he was so loving and he was so warm and so approachable. I mean, anybody could approach him at any time. Uh, and, you know, there's some directors who are just focused on the stars or something. That was so not Hal's uh, M.O. He was just an incredibly kind and loving and generous man. And and if I may, another story about him that totally changed my life is that um, flash forward many, many years, I had moved to Los Angeles and I was up for the job as the artistic director of the Long Beach Civic Light Opera back when it was one of the biggest musical theaters in the country. Mm. And I got all the way down to the wire uh, and they were checking references. And I thought, I need to pull out the big guns. I need to list Hal as a reference. So I did. And the head of the search committee called and a secretary said, I will give him the message. But you have to understand he's working on three shows at once. Do not hold out hope for a callback. So an hour later, he called this woman on the search committee and said, to say nice things about Luke Yankee, I'm stepping out of rehearsal. Hire him. And that was how I got the job, where I in turn met Don Hill, my husband, who was the associate producer. So shortly before Hal passed, we had certainly kept in touch over the years, but shortly before he passed, when he was doing Prince of Broadway, I wrote him and I said, I'm not sure that I've ever told you this, this directly, but I owe my marriage to you. And he wrote me back a dear email and, and was very touched by that. I love how things line up in life. Seemingly unconnected events are all incredibly interconnected. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. Your journey to writing, what what was the first piece that you worked on and how did that begin for you? Um. <laughs> I recently came across a file of grade school writing that my mother had saved. And there was this short story. I don't think I've ever shared this in an interview. There was this short story called Wally Waterfall. <laughs> and it was about this waterfall that was, you know, going all over the world, being a waterfall and uh, uh, was you know, trying to catch up with the most adorable little lady waterfall that he had met somewhere along the line. <laughs> and, and that was, you know, the, I guess that you'd call that was the seed of something. But then um, uh, actually I was, it, it was when I started really working as a playwright professionally or, or attempting to, uh, it was kind of selfish because there was a piece that um, my mother had done, a one-act play uh, on PBS back in the mid-60s with Maureen Stapleton, mm -hmm. and it was called Save Me a Place at Forest Lawn. And it was about these two old ladies in a cafeteria planning their funerals. 
and they both had and, and it was charming and bittersweet and and kind of along the lines of driving Miss Daisy. And so uh, I thought it would be an amazing full length piece. So I bought the rights to that uh, and adapted it. And just as I finished it, uh, just as I, you know, I had several workshops and readings and such. And just as I really felt it was ready and sent it to my mom and was hoping to do it as a full length piece with my mom and Julie Harris, my mother was diagnosed with lung cancer. And so that game was called. But it was done uh, subsequently at, at several regional theaters and it, it has gone on to have a life. Yeah. What was that connection for you then with writing and producing and direct, you know, and connecting all these dots? Because we can go through the resume and I can repeat the bio to everyone. <laughs> but I'm really curious how they kind of connect out of necessity, out of opportunity. It's just kind of what it was. Yeah, uh, I would say both out of opportunity and out of necessity. I mean, one thing that that one learns in in this business, if you want to have any sort of career, I mean, you always say yes. Yeah. It's like, well, uh, you know, if somebody asks you if you can do something, you know, you you lie about it and then go find out how to do it. Yeah. Um, the best example of this, which I'm actually kind of embarrassed about, I don't know that I've ever said this in an interview either. But uh, I had directed a couple of productions at the Coconut Grove Playhouse in Miami and had a great relationship with the people down there. And I ran into, uh, it was run at the time by a man named Arnold Middleman. And um, uh, I ran into one of his associates, this was when I was living in New York. And she said to me, uh, you know, Arnold is in town um, looking for somebody to direct Waiting for Godot. He was supposed to direct it, but he, you know he's overcommitted and he can't do it, and he's looking for a director. So, I um, uh, I, I, and I, uh, I had never read the play. Love. That. So I, I called a friend who was a scholar. Uh, and, you know, did a lot of uh, academic theater and such. And I said, all right, darling, I need a crash course in waiting for Godot. And I managed to bullshit my way through it enough to get the job. Oh, <laughs> again, it was just, and then I was like, oh, dear God, what have I gotten myself into? But uh, I'm not an easy play for, for people who know it well. But um, uh, long-winded answer to your question, Clayton. But um, again, you know, it's just uh, in between directing and, I mean, I started out as an actor and then and studied acting at Juilliard. And then things kind of started to dry up there when I was in my mid-20s and was no longer, you know, the, the college kid, yet I wasn't the leading man yet. Uh, so I started directing. And that was when I started, you know, I worked for Hal Prince and uh, and also assisted Gerald Friedman and Ellis Rabb and, uh, you know, kind of went back and forth between doing my own things in church basements and community theater and wherever they would have me at first, while I was assisting these incredible people on Broadway. And then um, the directing career was, was very successful, not wood. And then I reached a point through no fault of anyone's that kind of dried up for a while as well. I mean, you know, one often hits dry spells. My mother had some terrible ones in her career and which was very illustrious. So um, so I thought, okay, I'm gonna write something so that I have something to direct. Yeah. So, so I started writing my own things so that I could direct them. I love that. 
and uh, and then kind of evolved there. And um, but and and so now, really, I feel that uh, playwriting is really where my heart is. And again, while I still direct and I still produce and and all of that, uh, I feel that that's really at the moment. Those are the the shoes that fit me the best. And how do you find the time to write? Is this in the morning? Is this at night? Is this on paper? Is this with a laptop? Is this? Um, usually it's with a laptop. Uh, not always, certainly. Um, I I had an idea that um, I, I was standing in the checkout line at the grocery store one day. And as one does, I picked up the National Enquirer out of boredom. And there was a story in there, totally fabricated story about a young girl who had gotten uh, a, a hickey in the shape of Jesus from her boyfriend mm. and developed these sort of mystical powers because of, you know, this hickey that she had. So I wrote this play called The Jesus Hickey. And uh, it kicked around in my head for about seven years. And I knew I was going to write that story. And finally, I was on a plane on my way back from a, a writer's conference after my memoir had come out. And I wrote the whole first draft on the plane. I mean, pages were just flying in the air. <laughs> it's like something out of a movie. But, um, uh, you know, again, it's just you sort of never know when and where inspiration is going to hit. And and sometimes, you know, you'll get an idea for something and and you'll because needless to say, it's a huge commitment and a lot of work. But if that um, if that sort of nagging voice won't go away. And that idea that pops into your head at two o'clock in the morning just will not leave you alone. It's like, oh, damn, I guess I have to write this now. Yeah, that's so true. Oh, I love that. I love that. How? OK, so as a result of being a playwright and, of course, a teacher as well, mm -hmm. how have you gotten better at communicating? You know, I feel, Clayton, that really through both of those things, I mean, being a teacher is certainly akin to performing. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. this morning I did this morning I did three back to back lectures on uh, and nine, 10 and 11 on uh, Aristotle and Greek tragedy. <laughs> and, and, you know, there was a moment or two of, wait, did I say that in the last class or in this class? But but for the most part, you know, you just I, I sort of felt like, you know, I'm cranking out the Aladdin show at Disney or something. You know, <laughs> you just sort of keep going and, and doing what you need to do. Yeah. But uh, uh, I do feel it's made me a better communicator and certainly having to express myself in writing on paper because I also wrote a textbook called The Art of Writing for the Theater based on what I've been teaching over the past couple of years. And um, so, yes, I feel that all of that has made me a better communicator, uh, has made me a better director. It's, I mean, because, you know, they're all so enmeshed. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, it's um, definitely, I one hand washes the other in that regard. Fascinating stuff to me because growing up, I did not like reading writing and didn't yeah. enjoy it and it's all i do it's like all yeah. and, and it's also <laughs> fascinating too as i as i meet other individuals who maybe aren't so versed in reading and writing in the sense of like you know spending all day sending emails as a producer how yes. important it is you know how much i've grown as a result of just doing it and how many people haven't fine-tuned that and how that will affect how you just simply speak to other individuals and how Absolutely. most of these disagreements we see in the world are a breakdown in 
communication. So it's yeah. just, yeah, I think yeah exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, in life, how do you find the balance between making things happen and letting things happen? That's a really tricky one because obviously to, a, I mean, it's like that old, um, that old Quaker thing. What is it? It's something about uh, pray and move your feet. I believe that's, that's the saying, but you know, so it's something like, you know, to an extent having faith and just, I, you know, I do a lot of journaling and I'm very big. It, it sounds so corny and very LA, but I'm very big on my affirmations and all of that stuff. Uh, I just feel like they make a tremendous difference and also um, constantly knocking on the doors. I mean, that's something that you learn you can never stop doing. Uh, you know, maybe maybe Stephen Sondheim didn't need to. <laughs> Probably not. But, you know, you reach a point when you get to that level. Sure. But and, and then, of course, the people are coming to you. But um, uh, you, you just you can never stop. And and people say to me sometimes at the risk of tooting my own horn, people say, you know, Luke, how do you do all this? You know, how do you teach six classes and develop this play and and direct this reading, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it's like, I don't know how to do anything else. It because I just I've learned that if I don't do it, it's not gonna happen. You know, if I'm not constantly knocking on the doors and putting it out there and trying to move things forward. Uh, the only one it really matters to ultimately is me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, but, and it is tough to achieve a balance and it's tough to know, to answer your question, when you're pushing too hard or when you're pushing too far. And, and some of that, some of that just comes from experience. You know, I mean, you, you make those mistakes, especially when you're young and starting out and, and you do push too far and it's like, oh, okay, I, I've learned that lesson. I won't do that again. And uh, uh, and then sometimes the converse is true where people will be like, I, I was waiting to hear from you. Where have you been? Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's a crapshoot. It really is. Yeah. It's when you, when you unlock that part of your brain where you just keep going, it's kind of like it's life moves as fast as you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. which is kind of awesome because yeah, you should always be asking. I mean, that's you know, very rarely will I get a response that's rude from asking yes. for something. Yeah, or just asking to connect with someone, and most of the time, it has nothing to do with me and everything. Absolutely, to do with <laughs> and and boy, that's a huge lesson, and that's something it it takes so long to learn, and that's something I'm constantly telling my students. It's like nine times out of ten, it has nothing to do with you. Exactly. Oh my goodness. The more people that realize that, the better. I need to ask you about affirmations. We can't let that one go. So what does, what do they look like for you? Are you writing them down? Do they change daily, weekly, monthly, yearly? I'm going to give you my favorite example. I, um, of course, living in California, I'm totally reliant upon my car okay. and my car was shot and I could not afford a new one. Uh, I was, hadn't worked in quite a while. I was in between projects and I just, I really, really needed a new car. And so I started, I, I knew I wanted a Jeep Grand Cherokee, a Navy blue Jeep Grand Cherokee. So I started test driving them. I visualized myself behind the wheel. You know, I did all of those things and just started talking about my fabulous new car and, and telling people about my fabulous new car. Uh, I'd been away for the weekend and I came back and there was a letter 
And this was after doing that for maybe a month, maybe, maybe just three weeks. There was a letter, registered letter from an attorney in Warren, Pennsylvania. I had run a summer theater in Warren, Pennsylvania for several years. A little old man on the board of directors had died and left me $20,000. <laughs> and as I'm looking kind of like you are now, my husband said to me, well, honey, there's your Jeep Grand Cherokee. So, so, you know, if I ever have to doubt that this stuff works, I just have to think of that. I'm like full body chills right now. <laughs> it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Do you remember him? Very well. Very well. And the thing that was, his name was Quinn Smith. And he was, he was an older gay, I think he was already in his 80s when I met him. Mm -hmm. And he was this older gay man in a very small town who couldn't be open about who he was. And I would flirt with him in the most innocent way. And I would say, Quinn, darling, you look so fetching in that cashmere sweater today. And he would turn into a 17-year-old girl. He'd be like, oh, look. Oh. <laughs> and he was just adorable. He was just a lovely, lovely man and kind and dear. And, and we had kept in touch after I left the theater and all of that. But yeah, he didn't have any family. And uh, there were three of us who were friends of his. He left us each $20,000. That is a story. I, I've been calling him like universe moments, universal moments, because I've had a couple like that lately where there's someone who would probably not answer an email from Clayton now, who I was like, I need, I have to speak with this person. They would be great for this project. And then I get an inbound that from that person, their personal email saying, Hey, we want to explore, you know, live theater. Like you can't, plan that that's yeah it's true it's true and and for me Clayton what it's about it's about really getting the feeling you know really get and so it, it wasn't just like I'm going to have a Jeep Grand Cherokee it's like I have a Jeep Grand Cherokee I've used this you know and just really getting the feeling as if it's already mine uh I've used this with relationships I've used this with pets uh, when I got my first dog, um, I just I I fully believe that this stuff works. And I feel like it's if you sort of give over to it, it's life changing. I mean, I'm sure some of your viewers right now are like, oh, he's one of those woo woo Californians. But, I, you know, I've had tremendous results with it in my life. It's it's and it is definitely a two part thing. It's one what you just said, which I need to be better about, which is like already having it in your mind's yes. eye. Mm -hmm. But also constantly paying attention to the signs in life because yes. if you're on the right path things flow so you can't mm -hmm. be like i keep playing the lottery and i don't win it's like that's maybe not necessarily the question you can improve your question <laughs> you yes know? and it's also the whole thing of letting go of it yeah. i um uh i have a situation right now with my new play where i'm trying to get an extremely prominent actress to do a reading of it in New York for like a backers audition. And this lady is very, very busy. And I thought it was, you know, I, I had let go of it. I thought, you know, that ship has sailed. It had been a couple of months. And so she sent a text yesterday to our mutual contact. It's like, please tell Luke, I haven't forgotten about him. I'm still gonna read the play. I'm sure he thinks I'm terribly rude. I've just been really busy and I'm going to read his play. So, you know, I, again, the point is I had let go of it. I thought, 
you know, th this lady, God bless her, she's incredibly talented, just way too busy. And and it's not, you know, it's not dead yet, as they say in Monty Python. <laughs> <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. I'm this is a great conversation. I um, I'm curious. Is there a project that has taught you the most about yourself? Well, speaking of this current project, yes, absolutely. Uh, I have written a play called Marilyn Mom and Me. And my mother played Marilyn Monroe's best friend in the film A Bus Stop. And this was at a time when Marilyn was the biggest star in the world. And she um, uh, she had taken the year off prior to doing Bus Stop to uh, study at the Actors Studio with Lee Strasberg. And since she was now the epitome of the method actress, where she had to feel everything organically, since my mother was cast as her best friend, Marilyn was determined to make my mother her best friend. And this made my mother very uncomfortable. But for the sake of the film, she went along with it and sort of found herself enmeshed in the very complex, uh, often tragic world of Marilyn Monroe. And, um, uh, and to the day my mother died, Clayton, she could never talk about Marilyn Monroe without bursting into tears. And I knew there was something really deep there. So, and this is a long-winded answer to your question. So in this play, a 40-something Luke is, uh, and P.S., I do not play it myself. I'm way past 40, and I, I wouldn't do that anyway. But um, uh, but a 40-something Luke is interviewing his mother about her complex friendship with Marilyn Monroe to try and better understand their relationship before his mother dies. So... And and this play is so deeply personal. And I really, really go there to the point where when I would first hear readings, I'd be like, oh God, I really said that, didn't I? Uh, because it was so, so intimate about my relationship with my mother and so intimate about her relationship with Marilyn Monroe. Mm. And um, we had a very complex relationship. I adored her, she adored me. She was a very tough cookie and was very hard on me in many ways. And writing this play helped me realize where that was coming from. And it helped me realize that the toughness, the harsh words on occasion were because of her own issues of self-worth or lack thereof. And so, you know, that's why I'm I'm happy to say this play is getting a tremendous response. There, I've got several Broadway producers who are interested in it. It's about to have its world premiere at uh, uh, Equity Theater, International City Theater, and Equity Theater here on the West Coast, and which I will also be directing. And it has just taught me. It, it's my mother's been gone for over twenty years, and it's allowed me to forgive her. Hmm. Whatever kind of residual stuff was still there it's allowed me to let go of that. And that is huge. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, you know, because forgiveness is a gift you give yourself. So it has helped me to forgive her and to forgive myself. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is a gift you give yourself. Yeah. That's special. That's really special. What a discovery to have. And well, and I think, Clayton, because of the incredibly personal nature of this play, 
And because it does go to such a deep place, if I may say, I think that's the way people are responding to it as positively as they are. And, uh, you know, why it's it's already gotten, you know, just uh, won, won the Stanley Award, which is kind of a major playwriting award last year and um, an award previously won by Terrence McNally for his first play and Jonathan Larson for a little play called Rent. So uh, so I'm in good company. Yeah, you are. Rent. I've never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, some hack. I don't know. <laughs> you might have just answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, in case something else comes to top of mind. How has your taste evolved in what you work on or maybe who you work with? I think, you know, one of the things I teach my students, and this relates to what I was just saying, is that when you're writing a play, a novel, a memoir, whatever, um, and I learned this through writing my memoir of Just Outside the Spotlight about my mom's career and, and mine and, and our connection, I learned, Clayton, that the more personal you make something, the more universal it becomes. Because ultimately, we're all dealing with the same emotions. You know, it's trying to get somebody to love us, trying to get somebody's approval, trying to get home. I mean, whatever, you know, whatever home means to you. But, um, uh, you know, and, and when I wrote my memoir about my mom, I would sit at the computer sobbing and I would say to my husband, no one's going to give a shit about this. It's not going to sell any copies. And it's, it's such a personal intimate story and nobody's going to care. Well, the, the opposite was true, I'm happy to say, because people would write me and say, your relationship with your mom was just like my relationship with my Uncle Harry or my father or whatever, because I was talking about very real, very basic emotions. And and those are universal. Yeah, they are. They are. I um I I received these two books from you on Tuesday and we're speaking on a Friday. But after I get to consume them, I have a feeling we have another part in our future of conversation. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Maybe Sounds in person when you're over in uh, New York. Um, Indeed. Sorry? Yes, absolutely. The Since the pandemic, I guess, I'm curious what changes you've made in your personal life or professional life in life that have increased positivity and decreased negativity? Gosh, I, you know, I feel like that's a constant a constant journey and periodically cleaning house um from the standpoint of okay you know this person is really neg a negative energy person and i feel like they're really bringing me down so uh I, I need to you know detach with love and kind of let them go um <laughs> I, a dear friend of mine is a new thought minister who says you know, we pray for their highest and furthest. <laughs> their highest and furthest good. <laughs> you know, I, I I want you to be happy, but far away from me. <laughs> um, but um, uh, one of the things that was incredible for me about the pandemic is that um, I was I have a weekend place in Palm Springs and uh, my husband and I were able to teach from there. Uh, which was wonderful. We were teaching all our classes via Zoom. And i that was when I started working on my book, The Art of Writing for the Theater. And addition, initially, I expected that to simply be a how-to book, you know, on how, how to analyze a script, uh, how to write a play, how, how to criticize, how to write criticism. 
And because of the pandemic, because all of these, you know, incredible playwrights and Pulitzer Prize winners and Tony winners whose commissions had suddenly been put on hold, they all had time on their hands. So I wound up interviewing 18 world-class playwrights, critics, librettists, et cetera, for this book, which is not something I had initially intended. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to the how-to stuff, I've got interviews with Marsha Norman, David Henry Huang, uh, David Zippel, Joe DiPietro. I mean, just incredible people. And uh, it, it was really, really thrilling. And um, and boy, every one of those, Clayton, was like a masterclass for me. I learned so much. It was just, it, it was a real gift and a gift that came about as a result of the pandemic because most of those people probably wouldn't have been available under normal circumstances. That's so true. That's so true. It's far too much information, I'm sure, to get you to say right now. So you have to read the book. Um, <laughs> I was going to start asking specifics. Do you have any most gifted books? Um couple of books that have really changed my life uh the artist's way yeah um the writings of ralph waldo emerson because he's so much about the uh, uh the for lack of a better word the new age stuff that we talked about in terms of visualizations and all of that yeah. um gosh uh what else um I, you, the plays of tennessee williams changed my life especially a streetcar named desire and, um, uh, you know, I just uh, uh, and I felt that, again, as I was writing my books, especially my memoir, I just tried to really kind of channel some of the great writers that I know and and just tried to make it as conversational and as honest uh, as I could, because, I, yeah, there have been so many influences on me. Hmm. Metaphorically speaking. If you could put a word or a phrase on a billboard for millions of people to see, does anything come to mind? Probably the first one would be the thing I've already said, which is forgiveness is a gift you give yourself. Mm-hmm. And the other one, which is actually one of my favorite book titles, speaking of which, is called What You Think of Me is None of My Business. Uh, yeah. Because... You know, and and it's interesting because I often give that as a writing prompt to my students and they'll be like, well, of course you have to care what other people think about you. I mean, that's what all of society is based on, et cetera. But, you know, you reach a point and I, I guess it comes with age where, you know, of course you have to care to a point. And in this business, we're auditioning or we're interviewing, et cetera. And sure, I have to care what the person on the other side of the table thinks. But more often, it's just like, you know, it's how you feel about yourself at the end of the day. And that to me is is the most important thing. And, and one other thing that um that 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 clicks in for me is that we had a, a a priest in my hometown when I was growing up, a lovely older gentleman named Monsignor Maguire. And my mother ran into Monsignor Maguire in the grocery store one day and she said, Monsignor, how are you? And he said, just perfect. And he didn't mean that from a place of arrogance, but he meant that from a place of, at that moment in time, he was the perfect Monsignor Maguire. At this moment in time, I'm the perfect Luke Yankee. You're the perfect Clayton Howe, you know? So I think when once one reaches a point where one can realize that in life, I, I, I think it makes all the difference. 
Um, and, and, you know, one last thing along those lines, I, I also talk about, and this is something that Jack Canfield talks about in the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. He talks about something called the 20-40-60 rule, which is at age 20, you're obsessed with what everyone thinks about you. At age 40, you don't give a damn what anyone thinks about you. And at age 60, you know, they were never thinking about you in the first place. They were only thinking about themselves. <laughs> And I tell that to my students and I say, if you can learn this at 20, you will be so far ahead of the game. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I I learned that like, yeah, four, four or five years ago. And that was game changer. Game changing. I mean, absolutely. As long as you're leading with good intentions and not hurting yourself or anyone around you, how it's received is irrelevant. Absolutely. <laughs> because Absolutely. you could be the nicest person in the world and someone could just not like nice. <laughs> Absolutely. When I'm doing my one man show, I'll be backstage and sometimes I'll get particularly nervous and, oh my God, what if they don't like it? Blah, blah, blah. And I'll just kind of look in the mirror and I'll say to myself, just give the gift. Yeah. You can't judge how it's received. Just give the gift. This conversation has been extremely special, Luke. Thank you so much for taking it. It's been a joy, Clayton. Thank you so much. My last appointment before Labor Day weekend and what <laughs> a conversation to have to go into a holiday weekend. Is there anything else you want to add or leave here before we wrap up today? Uh, I, I would just like people to know that um, uh, if you care to find out any more information, my website is lukeyankee.com, just the way it sounds. Uh, and Marilyn Mom and Me will be done in uh, produce, fully produced in February of 2024 at International City Theater in Long Beach. And that website is ictlongbeach.org, just the way it sounds. This is great. What a great conversation. Thank you for taking the time. My great pleasure, Clayton. Have a wonderful weekend, and uh, it's been a joy. People of the world, Luke Yankee. <laughs> God bless. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another Curiosity Conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening.